Welcome to the Mix Masters Podcast, a program created by me, Steve Litcher, live sound engineer for the band Stitched Up Heart. I created this podcast during the COVID pandemic as a means to keep in contact with my friends and mentors from the live sound industry. Touring with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet some really incredible people, and I wanted to introduce you to their stories. So whether you're an experienced engineer, a hobbyist, or someone who's just wondered what goes into mixing a live music show, this podcast is for you. I've got to thank my friend Merritt Goodwin for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's an incredible musician and composer. Give him a shout on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin, or on Instagram at Doubt the Trust. Thanks again for joining me. Now let's bring up the faders and start the podcast. My guest for this episode of Mix Masters is Brian Hardiswick. In addition to being an accomplished drummer, Brian is the front of house engineer for In This Moment, Pop Evil, Skid Row, and others. Brian has been touring in one form or another for the better part of a decade and has served as a backline technician, a monitor engineer, a front of house engineer, stage manager, production manager, you name it, he's probably done it. In this episode, we'll talk with Brian about how he got started in the industry and some of the more creative methodologies he utilized to meet people and to gain traction in the touring world. He shares stories about his early days of touring, challenges with consoles, festival fun, and all sorts of other great things. We did have some internet connectivity issues during this episode. Brian was talking to me from Florida and our connection had some challenges. But his story is so great, it's worth a handful of interruptions. So please sit back and enjoy this inspiring and informational episode with Brian Hardiswick. All right. Hey, Brian, I want to welcome you to the Mixmasters podcast and thank you in advance for being a guest on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm like looking forward to this all week. Oh, man. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint too badly then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's had a great reputation. You've had some of my favorite engineers and mentors, so I'm definitely looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm uh, incredibly lucky to have gotten the people I've gotten so far, and that uh, record will continue by having you as a guest. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, too, because you mix a lot of my favorite bands, and uh, I follow you online, so it's cool to talk to you in person. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And again, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, let's jump in here. So I know of you, but I don't know a ton about you. So can you take us back to the earlier years in your life when you sort of got introduced to music? And how did you get introduced to music? What did you start doing? Were you a musician? Uh, did you always have an interest in uh, sound reproduction or production? Just take us back to the early days and really where you got started with things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it all started from a very, very, very young age, you know, three, four, five years old, always beating on pots and pan rhythm where I was always excited by that. Uh, and my, my mother to this day still has some pan lids that are just destroyed. And she's like, I'm just going to always save these in case, you know, somebody ever wants one someday and whatnot. Uh, so I was always, always interested in, in rhythm and drums and noise from, as a very young kid. Um, the first time I ever remember seeing and hearing like music and it, it doing something in my brain was in 1993 when Guns N' Roses played on the Video Music Awards. Uh, I remember like I was sitting on the living room floor, staring up at the TV, probably eating cereal or something. And the camera like showed Slash, like ripping a solo. And I just remember seeing the stage and the clothes and the lights and the hair. And it was like up until that point, my brain wires were like just trying to find a connection. And once I saw that moment on MTV with, with Guns N' Roses, 
uh, that's where the wiring really solidified that I was going to work in music one way or another for the rest of my life from that point on. Uh, and growing up, it was just my mom and I my whole life. And so she was always, always very heavily involved in music, listening to music, playing music in the house, in the car, going to concerts all the time. I remember in, I think, 94, when she went to Lollapalooza, when the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam and all those bands played. And that was the weekend that Mall of America opened. And she was part of like the giant Nerf gun war that they had on the opening day. So, you know, she was always she was always having fun and, you know, working hard as well. And once I turned about nine years old, nine or ten, uh, she took me to my first concert, which was the Steve Miller Band uh, at an arena. So and I'll never forget walking into the arena and seeing the parking lot full of cars and the smell and walking into this giant room and all this stuff hanging in the air and these giant speakers. And there was rock stars on stage. Uh, and it was such an exciting moment that the wiring just got deeper and deeper as I got older and older. And the, the desire never changed. It always strengthened. Uh, no matter what, all the way up until this day now, being 33, uh, I'm still wired the same way. I want to play music, be involved in music, write music, travel the world, and, and spread the word of it in whatever form that may be. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that 94 Lollapalooza, I think uh, that one, I remember that one for some reason as well. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was fascinating and amazing. So you're a rhythm guy. Um, have you always played drums? Have you tried any other instruments or are you just primarily drums and, and production? Uh, so for me, it's musically, it's always been drums. Uh, I've never wanted to be the guy at the front in the spotlight. I've never, guitars never made sense to me. It still doesn't. I can play a G chord sometimes if I'm really lucky. Uh, when I worked for Pop Evil, uh, when I was still on stage, I was kind of like the acoustic guitar tech. And so I had to YouTube how to change acoustic guitar strings. And then I had to also YouTube how to tune one. And I was like, man, when I had to check in front of people, I just had to make sure that G chord was locked in. Um, but no, drums have always been my thing. I grew up like idolizing Tommy Lee. Uh, I don't, almost maybe in a creepy sense. <laughs> I, I studied him all the time, his moves, what he would wear, the way he played drums. The, I tried to figure out the way he thought on the songs. I mean, you know, being also one of the biggest rock stars on the planet and one of the biggest rock and roll bands. Um, I was always infatuated with Motley Crue. Um, but uh, I've tried, I, can, I can dabble in piano enough to fake a couple things. I can't play whole songs. Um, I can take a pick and play the top string out of bass pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, and when I was younger, I used to write lyrics. Uh, I still like, I can write some hooks and like melodies in my head, but it's nothing, uh, nothing nearly as in-depth as the drumming is for me. Um, and I think the production stuff comes from growing up on the other side of things, always being obsessed with Christmas, uh, Christmas and Halloween, like the decorating and the costumes and the magic that's in the air during those holidays uh, kind of translates into touring and set design and set build, especially with a band like in this moment where it's Halloween almost, it is Halloween every day. It's heaven. Um, you know, so that's kind of growing up idolizing and Clark Griswold is one of my biggest heroes of all times. Uh, so, you know, I still desire to be like him someday. So I think that's where some of the, the, the production stuff started for me early on. Use any of those non-food uh, grade polymer uh, lubricants on the neck of the guitar so they can uh, go a little <laughs> faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I tried doing like researching how to play pentatonic scales and I could do it really slow, but I'm like, this is teaching me nothing because I'm never going to use this for anything. Yeah, I uh it's it's interesting that you mentioned Tommy Lee because uh Decker, the drummer from Stitched Up Heart, 
Tommy oh, Lee yeah. got him into drumming. He was a five-year-old kid, and he said he he saw T- Tommy Lee playing drums, and he was like, I want to be Tommy Lee. And he jokingly says, you know, there was already a guy who was Tommy Lee, so he just had to be Decker. But it's crazy that you guys have that uh, same uh, interest in Tommy Lee as, as drumming, and uh, I think that's really interesting. Very much. I mean, he's just – he's so flamboyant and so active, and he, his showmanship is so through the roof. And I also think that, in my opinion, he's kind of an, un, an underrated drummer. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's Tommy Lee. He just does stick tricks and flips upside down. But I, his rhythm and his pocket and his groove when he's just playing a beat is, is so tight and so locked in. And some of this, like, um, you know, the Generation Swine album and Dr. Feelgood and Shout Out the Devil, like, the shit, it's not super complicated, but it's the right thing for the right part. And that takes a lot for a drummer to do that and not try to be overshowing what they're capable of playing on a song. Oh yeah. I think that's, that's sort of the case with like ACDC's drummer. I can't think of his name now too, but you know, he yep. rarely did a fill, but he was like so critical to the sound of that band. It's, it's really cool. Right. I think it's Phil Rudd. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I think, I think that's well, right. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. I, I don't know my, I don't know people as well as I should. I, I know all the bands forward and backwards, but when it comes to the members, I'm a, right. I'm adult. <laughs> all right. All right. So you're the Clark Griswold loving Halloween and, and Christmas, that uh, connection there. When did you first start to realize that there was another side of the music world, like the production side? And did you sort of gravitate towards the live sound side to start off with or more towards recording, a little mix of both? Um, I think that when I really got, I, I guess when I realized that there was another side of it was when I was in middle school and we used to do big play productions and big musicals. We do one a year. And, you know, we would take out the old, I went to a very small school in South Dakota, mind you, I graduated with 23 kids in my high school class. Um, But, you know, we would bring, we would take a gym over for a month and we would build these big set pieces and moving walls and we'd bring in lights and sound. And, you know, nobody was really into it. People in the community were, but as far as school goes, nobody, everybody's playing sports and they're in band and art and track and whatnot. Uh, And I, that's when I got really into it. And I'd also get pulled out of class to go help set up. So I was like, well, that's a win. I don't have to sit here. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would start, it started off with like a little 12 channel PV mixer and four single boxes with some 12s in it. And we would use that and I would amplify the play. And I thought this is cool. And then I learned what like reverb was and echo and then this delay thing, whatever. I didn't know. I was like, well, that's cool. It makes this repeat sound. Uh, and then that, you know, I was like, audio is cool. Like I'm being counted on to do a job and the, the, commu- the community likes it. The actors are happy. It's fun to be backstage and troubleshoot how to run a lapel mic into a pack. You know, even though we had like the $45 radio shack packs that wouldn't last for more than 10 minutes. <laughs> um, and then that, that kind of branched into like the set design of, you know, we did the sound of music. I remember, and we had this big balcony in a gym and we had to make the balcony look like a set of Hills when she goes up in the Hills and she's walking through. Yeah. And so my job was to help, you know, cut out all these big pieces of plywood and make it look like it was another level and do a bunch of shadow painting. And I would spend hours and overnight hours working on stuff with the community. And I just got so infatuated with this that got me into my high school years. And I kept working along those lines of, of plays and theater and, and audio, but the school was so small, you know, my, my chances were, were very hit or miss as far as, you know, involvement, I should say. Um, and even like when we would do prom, I would help design the prom and help set all that up and do like the gossamer over the ceiling. And I was always, a, I claim not to be a perfectionist, but everything had to be straight and even and every light has to hang the same way. And you can't have overlap. 
you know, so that all that stuff combined now looking back, it makes sense. That was all the building blocks for what I'm doing now. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Um, so did you end up, so you're in South Dakota, you're in high school, you're, you're stepping up production levels. Uh, did you end up going to a different, a secondary school or anything like that for production or where did you go out once you got out of high school? Yep. So once I graduated, the initial plan was I was just going to move to Hollywood and be a drummer. I was going to live in a cardboard box outside the whiskey go go. And Tommy Lee was going to drive by and see me one day and just sign me to a band and everything was going to be great. What, what could possibly go wrong? Sounds like the perfect plan. <laughs> you know, so I was like, you know, I was the kid that was going to leave South Dakota and move to Hollywood. That was, that was my plan. And my mom supported it. She was like, cool, you know what? Do your thing. Do what you want. I'm all about it. She's like, if I can make a suggestion, I suggest that you get a degree. Like you find something in college that you enjoy that will benefit you. But even if it's for two years, just get something with your name on a piece of paper just to have it because you never know. And I fought her on it. I was like, I'm not going to do it. No way. I don't want to. Well, right before graduation goes, long story short, they had a bunch of colleges come and visit us in our high school gym. And there's this little school out of Nebraska called Northeast College. And the guy there was the professor for the audio broadcasting department. Well, I was like, well, audio, that sounds kind of cool. Found out that they had two brand new studios. Uh, they had just gotten at the time. It was like when the Mbox was still cool with Pro Tools. Yeah. Um, so they had that. And then they had the... Um, uh, I can't remember what the surface is like the eight channel version of the M box. Um, but anyway, so they had that and it was like, at the time it was the newest, coolest, best technology in the Midwest. Uh, the schooling was very reasonable. So I talked to the guy, you know, the dorms I thought were going to be cool. I didn't know it was weird, but I, I agreed with my mom and I went, so I went and I got an audio engineering degree and I did a minor in theatrical production and music business. Okay. Um, so that was, you know, I was in a bunch of bands. I didn't go to class as much as I should have, but what, what really kind of, I guess, made me realize that I wanted to do live was the program was super studio based. And I have trouble. I'm a very like always on the go, high energy, like can't sit still type of person. And, you know, we would sit there for eight hours a day and just learn about patch bays and wiring a studio and floating floors and, you know, sound diffusion and all these equations. And I'm like, my God, like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, this is not what I'm made for. But then we did a year of live audio where we had to go move the PA. We learned how to fly and patch it and amp racks and troubleshoot. And we'd go set up at this winery and do sound for bands. And it was like, things were going wrong. People had to be on top of their game. And I was like, this is right up my alley. Like, I like this. Yeah. Um, but then even in, even in college, I still wanted to be a drummer in a band. So I was just getting the degree. But I didn't realize that whole time that I was, my ear was going through training and I was learning how to to mix and I was learning how to place audio and I was learning how to be a leader and deal with people, you know, like in our groups, we'd always get put in groups of four and we had to record a band or we had to record a commercial or we had to fly stage left. They had to fly stage right. And so really, you know, I learned a lot about leadership and a lot about myself and, and during those years. Um, and I was also with college, I became president of the student activities association and student government. Uh, mainly because I have to pay for school and each of those paid for half of my tuition. So I was like, sweet deal. Uh, but I ended up, I loved being in part of both of those programs. And with the student activities, I actually helped design and build a massive haunted house for a fundraiser. And we put months into it. And I got donations by, I did all the horror makeup. I designed the rooms with the team. Um, and it was one of the most successful fundraisers the college had at that point. 
Wow. And that's where I started to see more of that production side of me coming up in, in conjunction with theater while going to school for audio. So again, fast forward those to that college experience, those building blocks and that wiring was just getting thicker and more intricate. I just didn't really realize it then because I was trying to just be a drummer in a band and not seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, it's crazy how that all works out. But then, you know, you were also smart enough to leverage those uh, interests and, you know, do things that you really enjoyed and then also put them to good use for the school with the the fundraisers and um, that's really, that's really cool. Absolutely. You know, I've always, I've always been a, a very firm believer that if you can help and there's people in need to make that connection, because you never know when you're going to need the, the favor return in any manner. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, we'll, we could, we'll talk uh, philosophies and philanthropies after, after this podcast, because <laughs> I think we're, we share similar perspectives there. Um, okay. So you're, you're going to school, you're in your second year. Um, did you ever make it out to Hollywood or what, what happened next? No, never made it. I made it as far as Norfolk, Nebraska. <laughs> uh, you know, once I was in school, I, I finished, got the degree, made some great friends, learned a lot about myself, et cetera. I learned how to live on my own for the first time, you know, all those firsts. And I, I grew a lot as a person. Um, and when school was done, I had in that time met some people from South Dakota where I originally lived, but in Sioux Falls, which is the biggest city in the state, they wanted to be in a band. And I was like, okay, you know, I did the school thing. Being in a band is still the dream. I'm going to follow through with this. So I went back to South Dakota, um, started a band, and we did pretty well. Like, we wrote a record. We got some recognition. We've had, we had some agents come out and watch. We did some touring. Uh, I was really proud of it. You know, we were doing, you know, cool makeup and, like, blood and, like, some stage props. So for a town in South Dakota, we were, we were, we were ahead of our game, man. Like, we were, people were coming to see what we were doing. What was the genre uh, of that music? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what was the style? No problem. Uh, it was active rock. Cool. Uh, and, you know, the singer of the band, his name was Dallas, still one of my best friends, uh, was so talented, sing, write, record, produce. And so when he brought me in, uh, you know, that's where I started drumming for him. And, you know, I started doing some of the cool stick tricks and started getting tattooed. And, you know, we were in a band and he kind of took me under his wing. And that's where recording kind of came in and audio again because he did the whole album himself. He produced it, wrote it, mixed it, mastered it. And I would sit there with him and he'd ask me things, you know, I'd hear the bass tone and I'm like, I think you need a little more, a little more low mid or a little more, you know, chug here. And I didn't really know how to describe it, but he would do it and he'd be like, you know, okay, cool. Yeah. I think that's proper. Or I think we should do it this way. So that's kind of where I learned that the ear, like I had an ear for this in some sense. I didn't know where that was going to take me or what that meant. So out of college, played in this band for a few years. Um, and you know, as most bands do, like I wanted to take off, hit the road, get in the van and trailer and just go do it. They had done it for a while. So we were just on different pages. So that band ended. Um, and the whole time that I was playing in that band, I was also working at guitar center in the pro audio department. So, you know, I was kind of, I was selling audio gear. We just got a pro tools rig. And so I would do different little things like pro tools Tuesdays in guitar center where local artists could come in and I would record them and I would joke people what I was doing just to kind of keep my chops up um and that all lasted for about three years i played in a couple other bands um one of my best friends i started a band with he ended up passing away and it was after that point where i was like maybe the band thing isn't isn't the go-to option you know i spent a solid six years trying to do this i was always the last man standing i was doing a lot of the booking i was, I was funding the band the promo anything i could possibly do to make this work um and so that all that kind of realization hit me in 2011, where I was like, you know, maybe I need to get on the tech production touring side. And then at that point, the question was, how do I do that? Beings, I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
So, yeah, there's not there's uh, there's not a lot going on where I live in Madison in terms of like touring and production. There's probably a little bit less in Sioux Falls. So, how did you? What did you do then? How did you uh, make that transition? Uh, well, it was. I mean, it's all about you know. They say it's it's not. Uh, it, it's all all about who you know. Excuse me. Uh, so I would just go to every single show I could. And at the time, a, a buddy of mine, Jerry Johnson, he's the CEO for Pepper Entertainment and is now booking now all over the country. Um, he would always be bringing bands in like Static X, Theory of a Dead Man, Three Days Grace, My Darkest Days, Five Finger Death Punch, Hailstorm, all those active rock bands. So I'd always go to shows and help him be a runner, help load audio gear, any job I could do. I'd be there at five in the morning ready to roll. Um, but when I couldn't afford to go into shows, before I kind of got to know him is I would just buy like a $1 XLR cable at guitar center and show up backstage to a concert with my work shirt on and my name tag. And when they would stop me, I would just tell them that I just got a call from the promoter and somebody out by the soundboard needed this cable like 911. So they let me leave work early. And I would just walk out into the crowd and walk towards the soundboard and throw it away and watch the show, you know, any, and just stand by front of house and shake any hand I could and introduce myself to anybody I could. You know, uh, it was it was just a matter of making contacts that I had to get that one contact to get me in the door. And that happened on June 1st, 2011. Uh, the band called Pop Evil was opening for Hailstorm and Papa Roach. And I was going to go to the show. Uh, I had a ticket for this one. I didn't have to sneak my way in. And it downpoured, massive storm hit. And I wasn't going to go. I was like, oh, I don't want to stand in the rain. This sucks. I'm just going to go home. But, you know, I had something in the back of my head said, go to the show and check this out. Uh, so I went, maybe 300, 400 people were there. It rained, it was crappy out. But I, I, was, I subsided stage and met this guy named Bobo. Bobo was a guitar tech for the band Pop Evil. And I just got talking. I'm like, how did you get into this? You know, what does it take? What could I do? And he's like, you know, man, he's like, you just got to be at the right place at the right time. He's like, tell you what, here's my number. Give me yours. If we ever need any help, I'll call you. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, that, that's a contact. That's a phone number. That's somebody that knows me. Well, that fast forwarded to like two weeks later and I was getting ready to go boating with my buddies and like we're driving down and getting ready to dock the boat and my phone goes off and it says Bobo Pop Evil. And I didn't even read the text. I just knew at that moment, I was like, this is it. This is like that. This is that moment that everybody talks about. Like my life's going to change. And I looked at it and it said, are you busy? And I called him immediately and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, hey, so our drum tech or our drummer got hurt. We got a new drummer coming in. And we need, we need another crew guy. Are you interested? And like, before I can even say yes, I already turned my buddy to turn the boat around and we're, I got to go home and pack a bag. Wow. And so we did. And I flew out with knowing anything. I agreed to work for free and I paid for my own flight. I just wanted a bed on the bus. And so I left everything in my house. My roommate lived in. I just took a, a duffel bag, went and said bye to my dog and my parents and got the flight. And I flew to Jackson, Mississippi on June 21st, 2011. And that was the, that was, you know, kind of the day that everything changed. Wow, man. So you, uh, so then you drum teched for pop evil for a while. Um, was that pretty much all you were doing at that time or, or what happened? Uh, what were you doing? Yep. So I went out just as a drum tech. That was it. And kind of in the back of my head, my plan was to go out and drum tech and then network as a drummer to other bands and try and get a spot. And, you know, I hit it off with the guys really well. Uh, Chachi still to this day is one of my best friends. He's who was playing drums at, the, at that point. Um, I was in his wedding. I actually just did a podcast with him the other day about running and some outdoor stuff. Oh, cool. uh, he's doing great. Yeah. And you know, I, 
I really enjoyed that, you know, drum teching and seeing the world. Like now I'm living on a tour bus. I'm staying up late in these cool cities. I'm going to bed in New York City and waking up at the ocean in New Jersey. Uh, you know, we're doing all these cool shows. I'm meeting people. And that kind of that led into about a year after that. Just I kind of just monitors were always an issue. They were squealing. They were feeding back. We didn't have a monitor guy. I didn't know what monitors were. I didn't really know how they worked. And the band was getting frustrated. So I decided to learn about monitors and fix it. So for a while, for about another year, so two years in at this point, I would, uh, you know, learn frequencies. I learned 3.15K was the first one that I learned. And I'm like, this is always the one that's causing all kinds of ruckus. So cut that out, you know? And I just learned and taught myself frequencies and patching and signal flow and how to ring out microphones and stereo placement and phase. And I just would, I would use the internet and books and I would ask other engineers to the point where I could have a sheet of paper and walk in and give them a proper in-ear mix for all five band members. Um, and then that led to me buying my first little X32 producer three years into the band. And I, I bought that and I bought them uh, the, the Sennheiser EW200s, uh, ears and packs. And then I got them all in in-ears and I learned how to use that board and I learned how to start sending effects and I learned what digital mixing was. So now when we were going to festivals and stuff, we were having really great shows and not taking extra time because we were now almost self-contained. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where, that's where the audio started to lead into out of the drum teching in the beginning of Pop Evil. Wow. Yeah. So you, um, can you, can we step back for one second? So when you were first starting to learn about monitors with them, were you relying on house and venue uh, rigs and you were just rolling in and trying to, you're working on a different console, different wedges, everything was unique to each venue. Yep. Every day, every day was, it was the luck of the draw. You never knew it was going to be in the bowl of soup. Uh, yeah. And that was before I really knew what production managers were and having riders and production sheets and, you know, doing phone calls and advancing a show. I didn't know what any of that was at that time. So I just was going among what our tour manager told us to do and doing my job and trying to keep that seat on that bus every day, you know? Yeah. Cause at that point when, when you're working for free and that band was just starting to take off, nobody really has that much to lose. Because, you know, people will just come and go trying to get that spot and trying to, you know, help themselves as much as the band's trying to do their thing. Yeah. So, you know, I really wanted to, I really wanted the band to know that I was there for them and to make their show as great as it could be. And it was the benefit wasn't for me at, at first. It was for them and my my appreciation for the job. Yeah, I know how that goes. Um, similar scenario was stitched apart. I mixed a bunch of shows for them over the summer last year as sort of a trial run and, you know, brought gear that I was familiar with and uh, tried to help out as best I could. And it apparently worked because then when they went out last fall with Steel Panther, they were like, hey, dude, if you want to you know, run sound for us, we'd love it. And if you've got any suggestions, you know, we'll take them. And every single show got a little bit better because, you know, you're all there trying to do, you know, the greater good. So I really admire that you uh, took that approach and, and put in that time and, and, you know, did stuff sort of selfishly, but also for the band. You know, it's, it's a big team effort. So that's really that's really commendable. All right, so you're on the X32 producer. You've got the band on some in-ears. Uh, did you then transition more from drum tech to monitors, or were you wearing both hats, or what were you? What was that like? Yeah, so once I once I got them on our our all-inclusive package, uh, we were carrying that. I was still drum teching, and that then also led to you know I helped them build a little set. It was a little rolling eight by eight riser with a couple wings, a skirt. I helped them with the backdrop. And so then I kind of took on this production role, though I didn't really know what that was still at this time. Um, so then fast forward about four years into the band, and now my, my official title was production manager, 
monitor engineer and drum tech stage manager you know because there's only we have a small crew there's only four of us yeah and so one guy does guitars and bass there's me tour manager and merch wow so you know we just we made it work um there was one point in the band where i had to play drums for three shows our drummer's grandma passed away um so and we also had playback i forgot about that so i was also running playback that was the whole time it started with just um it was a garage band and there was one song with the left and right out click and tracks which eventually got to a proper pro tools eight channel split rig yeah um so I remember one, I remember three shows, it's March 13th, 2014, I believe, of like loading in, building the show, then sound checking with the band, then making sure all the other bands do their thing on time, then getting ready, then playing the show while running tracks, while making sure nothing was falling apart in the monitoring. Nothing to it. No, I was like, oh, it's stick tricks, eyeliner, let's roll. <laughs> oh my uh, goodness. But, yeah, that, you know, that, and then that eventually in 2015 is when I moved out to front of house with Pop Evil. I bought a full size X32, and that's when the tour manager was too busy. The band was growing, they were doing things. So we brought other people in on stage, and I told, I sat down with the band, and I was like, you know, I love doing audio and it excites me, but monitors, I'm mixing what you guys want. The thrill for me wasn't there as much as it is out front, controlling what the whole crowd hears. And that was when. I really dove into audio and started buying microphones and researching. And I started buying Waves products and trying to get different console rentals. And I went like, I dove in deep into to audio in front of house mixing starting in 2015. Wow. Yeah. So then were you still using the producer for monitors and were you, did, were you using like a DL32 or a, a, you know, S16 or something like that to do a digital split or what were you doing with the preamps and signal chain there? Yep. So we did the producer on stage, X32 in front of house. Um, and then we did have the DL32 for myself, which was via Cat5 connection. Yep. Um, and then we did uh, the Proco split. So okay. we would go from the stage boxes into the split, uh, split into a 16. And then we also, because the 16 in conjunction with the producer gave us 32 inputs. Um, and then we would just use the other, the other set of tails would go to my DL32 for me in front of house. Oh, wow. Yep. Sorry, that was a selfish question because was stitched up on the last tour. We used a, they had an X32 rack that they were using for in-ears. I was using a yep. M32R for front of house. And then we just parked a DL32, you know, in the stage rack, ran all the inputs into the DL32. They got one Cat5 for the X32. I got one Cat5 for the M32 and it worked really well. So I was, that was a selfish uh, diversion there. So sorry about that. No, no worries. Uh, so for Poppy Evil, this New Year's Eve, they actually brought me back to mix their downtown outdoors Grand Rapids show, hometown show. And I flew in two days prior and they're like, yeah, we just need help with a couple things. It should be pretty all right. And I show up to the hotel and it's all new racks, all new snakes, all new cabling. It's all new. Uh, it's the new uh, the new Midas M32, like the, the core, the yeah. sliver. Yeah. Uh, six iPads, two new routers, and I was like, "You guys are definitely not going to be playing in an hour, but this will all work for the show tomorrow." And we we got it all done. Yeah, uh, I've got that M32 core also. That's actually what I took out in the summer with uh, Stitched. Was I took that with the DL32, and I just mixed via an iPad because uh, I was following them around in my car because uh, there was no room on the bus or anything like that. I just wanted to be involved, and yep. uh, so you know whatever it took to make it work, and you know. Apparently, I fooled them well enough that they, you know, called me back in the fall. Um, so cool! All right, wow, this is really fascinating. So you're you're doing front. You make the transition to front of house. You're working with Pop Evil. 
were you, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I'm, we're, I think we're in a good spot to ask this question. Were you, you said that you were starting to play around with waves. Were you actively using waves for those shows back then? And, and if so, what were you doing with waves? I was. So, uh, when I got introduced to it, this would have been 2015, uh, summer of 15 is, uh, you know, we'd be out with bands around profiles and I was hearing all these incredible mixes and I was seeing all these things called plugins. And I was like, you know, I, and then I finally understood in my head, the plugin is like a photo filter, but for audio, you know, you're, you're manipulating, you're changing, you're improving, you're, you're dissecting the audio and doing whatever you want. And so, um, I was sitting at home one night on my, on my bed and I got a waves email and it said, if I buy tracks live, I get uh, waves, the rack for free, uh, with uh, a free plugin of my choice. And it's like a $500 value. So it was Black Friday, excuse me, for Thanksgiving, Black Friday, that big waves deal that they do. It's infamous. Um, yep. And so I bought that. And the first plugin I bought, uh, what was it? It was, oh, the C6. Uh, that was the first waves plugin I bought. Because I remember uh, people always using the C6 and being able to hear a vocal and just choose like when you want, like, you know, DS it yourself and choose some of the low end that you don't need, but only when those notes are being sang. And I was like, oh, wow, that's incredible that you can do that. So I remember buying that and I integrated it with the, uh, the X32. So I would run like Lee's vocal channel. Uh, his was the uh, ULX4. I got the Telefunken M80 capsule on the Sure stick because I liked the, the background rejection of the Telefunken stuff, yeah. which I learned from uh, one of the guys from Disturbed a long time ago. Um, into Waves, I had the C6 and then I would eventually uh, move up to the, uh, the SSL package. So I'd be running through an SSL channel strip and the warmth that I heard, I was like, wow, you can actually hear the audio being changed. So the little SSL, like the 400 bundle, I think it is, it's like $399. Um, and then the, the C6 for the first two plugins that I had. And then I eventually got the gold bundle. And I would just play with different ones and see how the different reverbs and the delay sounded. I remember getting H delay and I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Um, so that was my introduction to Waves. And, you know, at first I got the M32 and in my own head, I was like, okay, cool, M32, you show up to a festival, and people are like, oh, great, another one of these things. But, you know, I really dug into that thing, man. And I, I produced, in my opinion, I have some recordings and mentors of mine, some really solid festival shows. I mean, I mixed Rock on the Range with that. I've mixed Caroline Rebellion. Uh, we did a five-finger Death Punch tour, U.S. and Europe. Um, when I, did, I worked for Fifth Harmony, the girl pop group, yeah. for a little while. Yeah. And I, did, I did monitors and playback, and I had an X32 for that. And... The girls were always happy with the mixes. They loved it. They, the effects, the panning, there was no complaints. Yeah. Um, so I really, I really put the time into learning how to use that desk. Do you know, do you happen to know Sam Abernathy by chance? I do. Yeah. So he's, he's an M32 whisperer. He, uh, I've seen him mix shows, uh, that summer tour that I did with, uh, Stitched starting off. He was running on an M32 and man, he, it, I, you know, I don't think that the technology is all so good these days. It's really, you know, the person operating it that makes all the difference. And yeah, I, I don't doubt for a second that all of your stuff sounded fantastic on those boards. When you were doing the wave stuff starting off, were you using it native or did you have a sound grid server or what were you doing uh, on that side? Uh, I did. It was, uh, I did not have the sound grid server. It was native. So I would just use my MacBook. Yeah. Um, I would shut everything else that I was running processing on at that point, open up my waves mix rack and I would just, and you know, I didn't, I didn't know how many plugins I could do because the computer only had eight gigs on it. So, you know, I don't want to in the middle of a show, God forbid the computer freezes and I lose all my vocals. Um, so I really only would use it on vocals. 
Um, as far as drums and guitars and whatnot would go, uh, I was happy with the way I could do my parallel compression on there for drums and the verbs I was getting and the panning. And, you know, like my guitars, I'll do a stereo group of guitars. And I was able to build my mix and produce it live what I was hearing internally without having to slam. I mean, I, I also believe people can use way too many plugins. There's a few guys that I've heard some shows that are, I mean, I'll see 18 plugins, it seems, on a vocal channel. And it's so buried and squashed and there's no life and no, there's no presence. And I'm like, man, that they're like, oh, but it's, I can push it as loud as I want. And I'm like, that's cool that your vocal's loud, but it's not pleasing to listen to. Yeah. You know, it doesn't sound soft. It's not a confident mixed vocal, in my opinion. Yeah. If you pulled off half of these plugins and let it breathe, it would shine. Yeah. There's a, there's definitely a point of diminishing returns. Um, I'm more of a minimalist with it as well. Uh, I, I actually took a waves rig out with stitched last fall and I didn't, I ended up not using it very much because I was getting enough of what I needed and could use, uh, through the, the board itself. And it was just one last thing I had to set up and worry about crashing or, you know, dialing in or playing around with. So yeah, I totally appreciate that. Um, so then you've, you've, besides pop evil, which is really where you got started touring, you know, in sort of quote unquote big time, you've also worked with some other bands like avatar and in this moment and uh, Skid Row um, and others. How did you end up getting uh, connected to the guys with Avatar? How did that play out? Yeah. So the the management team that manages Pop Evil, G and G Entertainment, um, it's a father son, uh, the Capolinis. They uh, also manage Avatar and the band Red Sun Rising when they were still active. Um, so when Pop Evil, when we actually did, I did Avatar's first ever U.S. tour, like their their first time they put their foot on American soil. We were there for them. Wow. Uh, I remember taking them to Walmart for the first time and they were, they were mind blown. Like Dick, cause you know, over, over in Europe, Dickies is very expensive to buy and at Walmart, you get a pair of shorts for like 20 some bucks. And so they were just so impressed. You could buy so much in one store and the prices and the convenience of America, you know, they being able to drive down the street and have 10 food options at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, so that's, I got to know them through, through the pop evil management. And I went out and I would do their production drum tech. And eventually it went from stage, kind of the same story, got them settled on stage. They bring a lot of their own production over. And then eventually I went out and did front of house for them while kind of overseeing the production management side. Um, Cause you know, their show grows pretty heavily every time they come back with sets and set carts and lighting and kabuki drops. So it's, every tour it was more and more stuff and the workload grew and the knowledge grew of how to advance more and get more in a truck and where to park a bandwagon in a trailer in new york city um so you know that's that that's where that came into play so i did a lot of pop evil avatar stuff in between um there was a couple of years i was doing 300 shows a year between the two and i would just go from tour to tour to tour to tour oh man yeah i'm jealous but that's also that that wears on you <laughs> Oh, it does. I mean, Pop Evil still, man, they're known for doing a couple hundred shows a year. They're road dogs. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and then talking about parking a bandwagon and trailer in New York, I'm assuming you guys parked in that uh, infamous Walmart in New Jersey, just over the bridge like everybody else. Yeah, and no, Secaucus. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, we, oh, yeah. we did uh, two nights at the Gramercy, uh, sort of lower east side of... Uh, Manhattan and yeah, our, we saw our driver on Monday when we unloaded for the show, and then we saw him again on Wednesday. And we're like, "What did you do?" And he's like, "Oh, I hung out in this Walmart with a bunch of other band bus drivers." <laughs> yep, that's where um, 
so we were just in, I was just, I did a tour with Motionless and White and Beartooth in January as, sta- for, as a stage manager. Yeah. And we played at the, um, the Webster Hall. And we got so lucky that day, I was able to park two buses and a semi right outside on the street. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was like, a, people thought it was a mirage. They're like, there's no way this is real. And there was a Starbucks right down the street. I was like, perfect day. I hope you bought a lottery ticket right after that. Cause, uh... Uh, yeah, I had some of the best ramen in my life that day. Nice. Nice. All right. So, um, man, yeah, this is really fascinating. Uh, I might have to have you on for a second show, uh, if you'll, if you'll endure me, uh, for a round two, but, um, I'd be happy to, <laughs> I'm loving this. Uh, so when you're, so some of the, the avatars and the, the pop evil in, in this moment where you've got sort of bigger production value and the shows are always growing, what's your role in sort of specking out the equipment for those type of those type of shows i know uh you said you were using the x32 with pop evil but did you carry that same console with like avatar and and are you carrying that with in this moment or how do you approach those shows from a a technology standpoint all right so pop evil was always the x32 i owned it i rented it to the band so i carried that i carried that over to avatar with those two bands at that point there just wasn't a budget to rent audio as much as I wanted to get an SC48 and a profile at the time or a pro two, um, there were just, the budget wasn't there and I own this. So, you know, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, and then uh, after pop evil, I went to nothing more and I mixed them for a tour and the nothing more guys owned an M32. So with them, I just used that. They owned it. They don't want to pay money to rent. Totally makes sense. Yep. So I just carried over my show file and the waves rig again there. Um, but in this moment, that was definitely a, that was just a step up all around. They they do rent from an audio company. They rent from a lighting vendor. They do build sets for every tour. There's a lot of moving parts in that. And you know, when I first got the call, I didn't know if I was capable of doing that job because I mean, I just remember seeing them at festivals, and I'm like, oh man, that looks scary. I don't know if I, that, there's a lot going on there. I don't know if I can do it. But I'm also a big advocate of I have to take myself out of my comfort zone to make myself better, and that's something I've never been scared to do. And, you know, so I got the call and my first tour with them was to be stage manager and playback and drum tech. So my first tour within this moment was on stage. And after that tour, the band knew that I had mixed and I liked audio and I kind of would help them do some, some tone dialing and we would talk audio. And one day on the bus, Chris and Maria were just like, Hey, do you want to mix this band? We'll put you out front. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. You know, she had a headset microphone. There was a lot of, there was a lot against me for going out front. Cause I didn't, I didn't know. Um, and we, I, I figured it out, man. You know, I, I got a profile, which I'd never used. I'll never forget this. So the production manager at the time is like, so you're cool with the profile, right? And I was like, yeah, no problem. I got this. Never. I mean, I used one like two times. I was scared of it. I'll tell you that story in a second why I was scared of a profile. Uh, and then I remember there's like these plugins and I'm like, well, I only know about the C6 and the SSL bundle. So then I like researched plugins. and I, I the, the guy that was mixing them sent me a show file. So I researched it and I learned what everything was doing. And I remember going into Claire and I'm like, I'm going to have to turn this thing on. But I was like, I'm not going to ask. Nope, not doing it. So, I, you know, of course, I figured it out. I got it patched. The guys at Claire were super cool. Got the board up and running. And my first show with them was uh, we did pre-pro, but the, in this moment, pre-pros are very much set and show-based. The audio kind of gets at the last or the very beginning because um, the shows that we're doing, there's a lot of detail between the dancers and the fog and the lights and the choreography and the prop changes. Um and we did two nights, sold out Chicago House of Blues, unmuted the channels, and I went for it. And it was a pretty slamming show. You know, just I kept balance and control. I kept her vocal and her effects on top. And we went with it. 
But so for that tour, you know, I, I wanted to grow all the way around and get off the X32. And, you know, when I'm showing up to all these festivals at that point, everybody had profiles. So that's when I taught myself the profile. That knowledge carried over to obviously the SC48, which is what Asking Alexandria carried when I was out mixing them. So I was, I was familiar with that. Um, and the thing now was I wanted to grow and learn even more. The profile is 17 years old. It's, it's old news. It's a dinosaur. It's still a workhorse when it, when it wants to be. But that's when I, you know, I was, I was seeing Drew and I was seeing these other guys and Logan on the, the D-Live and the Allen and Heath. And I, that's what they had on Motionless and White was the D-Live. Uh, so having been on the profile for so long, you know, getting on that Motionless and White tour this January, I saw Logan was using the 7,000. Uh, Drew was out with the five. Uh, Logan had the 1,500 at one point. And so I'd go out to front of house and I was listening and the warmth and, the, and the, the sonic quality and the reverbs on the drums and the parallel compression you can do on each channel. I was like, man, this mix sounds fantastic. And, you know, Logan really is the guy that sold me on it in, in person. I got to see Billy and Eilish's show this summer last year. Uh, but at that time, it was so new and the show sounded great, but I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't have anything to compare it to. Um, and so Logan's, I guess, the one that really sold me on the desk. And that was, I was like, you know what? I, I want off the profile. It's old news. Like you said, and it's it's time to, it's time to grow. It's time to, to expand the brain and the knowledge, and that's why I got a hold of Sound Image, who we've been with now for a few years within this moment. And they're like, "Yeah, we'll send you one." Jesse Adamson, our rep, was super rad. Sent that in the mix rack early, and they let me go in the shop and just start playing with it, loading my virtual sound check, and I was supposed to be mixing on it in about two hours to, on this day exactly, but we're not doing that tour. <laughs> oh, I I feel your pain. Uh... I also own a D Live, uh, as everybody's pretty aware these days, because I, I promote it and pimp it every chance I can get. Uh, and I was so looking forward to using it on tour, and then you know the the virus came along, so I feel your pain. Yep. <laughs> um, so you were going to talk a little bit about uh, the SC48 or the profile and uh, why you were scared of it or something uh, had scared you. Yeah. Uh, so this might be in Wisconsin, actually. The the W. This the, what's the fest Sonic Boom yeah. Sonic Boom Festival. Yeah. So I was mixing Pop Evil. This was my first time. This is still new to front of house, and for some reason that day I was feeling ballsy, and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna use whatever they have. I'm not gonna use my X32. I have no idea why I thought this was a good idea. <laughs> so I went out front, and I was like, I'm gonna mix on the profile. And uh, I don't know if you know Denny Miller, System Tech. Uh, he also mixes front of house. He's out with. Uh, he spent a lot of time with Volbeat. Okay. Uh, yeah. He's brilliant. Fantastic system engineer. Yeah. Great mixer. Awesome dude. Um, and he was out there. I didn't know him really at the time. And I dialed in my show, not realizing how much quieter the profile is, not realizing uh, there's like 50,000 people at this festival. Yeah, it's huge. And so I, all my EQs look good and my gains look good. Uh, band starts i unmute the channels playbacks roll and i'm like man i can barely hear anything that's weird i'm like maybe something's quiet i'm like is the system turned down like what's going on they're like no man this, this is your show and the band started and it was it came out of like 85 db it was like a whisper <laughs> i couldn't get anything over every time i would try to push it it would distort it was i mean to the point like where the audience was turning around and looking at me like they knew denny comes up to me and he's like this this sounds really bad and I was like, yep, totally aware. And I was like, I dug this hole, man. I'm going to get myself out of it. And it, by the end of the show, it got audible. But, dude, I mean, that was, that was a no, nosedive plane crash. What did, you, what did you find you were doing wrong with the, with the console? Um, 
I just, I was unknowledgeable on it. The workflow, being able to move quick, you know, on my, my kick drum channel, not doing a, a ducker with my bass, not doing a double channel of vocals and, and, and compressing it properly, not using a C6. Um, I find the profile to be like a solid six to nine dB quieter than most desks. Um, if I understand it correctly, it was mainly built for broadcast. So it's very sterile. That's why there's plugins. You have to add flavor, you know? Yeah. Um, so now I always run my outputs on a profile into a, into an API and then the, the Rupert Need Portico 2. And I get 3 dB of output on each of those. So now my show file, when I bring up my kick drum, it's a proper kick drum like everyone else's is. And then I can just EQ. I'm not trying to push to make up. I mean, once you hit that rush screwed. Yeah. So that's when I really decided, like, that's when I was like, I need to learn like, what I'm doing on this desk instead of just being on an X32 all the time. That's what caused me out of my comfort zone with the X32. Yeah. It's uh, and that's a really great point. You know, like there's so there's offline editors for everything these days, but that's something you would never catch in an offline editor if you're using, you know, you wouldn't realize that the desk is quieter and that you need to do these extra tricks. So, um, something to be said for having the console and and gear at hand, uh, whenever possible. Absolutely. Um, so when you're mixing, like in this moment, let's let's fast forward here, because uh, time is just flying by. But when you're mixing in this moment, what are what are you listening to in the mix? Where are you really focusing your energy, and what are some of your tricks for getting the mix to be so cohesive? Right. So within this moment, that's a different type of animal because when you listen to the records, uh, all their records have been done by Kevin Cherko, um, and I'm a massive Kevin Cherko fan. He's got when I listen to his mix versus pretty much anyone else's, they're louder, they're more powerful. They're more in your face. It's almost, you know, he's got a magic formula for getting him to, to produce what he's doing in the studio. And with Maria, she wears the Crown CM311 headset microphone. So that's its own animal. I'm always used to a singer holding a handheld. Um, so, you know, with that, my main thing is, is her. She knows, and one cool thing about working with Maria is she knows what she wants 24-7, 365, inside and out. She knows what effects she wants. She knows what her voice is sound like in every part of every song. She knows what color light she wants at this moment, how much fog she wants here, what, how many seconds it should take to move from one dress to these boots, to, to grab this hair curling iron, to walk to that riser. She knows every single one of those moments, and it's all planned out in her head. Wow. So there's never any question for, do you want this or do you want that, which I love. You know, we always know what is expected of us in every department. Um, so first and foremost, I'm listening, when I'm listening to the show, I want to try and produce the record as much as possible with having that live flow. When people are watching this grand audio show with these dancers and these theatrics and this light show, there should be an in-your-face mix to go with it. Never painful, but scary and awesome. If, if that makes sense, you know, uh, like when Kent comes in with his drums, uh, being a drummer, and I, I get a lot of my compliments um, and questions on my drum mix, and it's I can get drums in your face and very, very Metallica Black album, uh, without any sort of triggers or any any digital replacement. Um, so Kent will play, for example, on drums. He plays 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 22-inch gong drum, which is a very cool, you know, you can really get those tones to stand out. I don't use any bottom heads, and I put Kelly shoe mounts inside of every tom. So my microphones are inside of every drum, balancing on a shock mount system. So when you strike that drum, it's the same concept as a kick drum. It's a cannon. 
but it's a 10 inch cannon, then a 12 inch, then a 14. So when he like rips through that kit, it hurts you. It sounds like a machine gun. And you know, all the time there's even like, there's, I still have some screenshots from Instagram of people blaming me for using triggers and saying that, you know, I need to learn how to use microphones and EQ, taking a picture of the drum and you can see the XLR cable sticking out of the bottom of the toms. Uh, and they just don't, they won't believe that it's not triggers. And it doesn't, I don't understand why people, I get with fast drum, kick drum stuff, like when you get those 290 BPM players doing doubles, the articulation, I totally get that. But every sound that we're after was created by a human ear at one point. Like that Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood sound, all that Bob Rock stuff. Yeah. Uh, all those sounds, the Pantera sounds, people created that at one time with a microphone. Yeah. So I'm a believer that it should be created live. Um, but in the big picture of things, I'm listening to her vocal, her effects, her delays. Um, I'm listening to my, I, I picture it as like a vocal in the middle, guitars sit around that, drums sit around the outside and scoop in in the middle. And then there's all the air and the, the playback and the cymbals around that. So in my head, I kind of mix in like a circle and it builds out from there. Oh, that's cool. Are you using a lot of, uh, are you doing a lot of bussing or are you pretty much uh, straight channel strips into left, right? Or how are, how are you laying out your board? Yep. So we are 45 channels total. Um, and I'll take, I think on the profile I have, so I have like my drum group, uh, my cymbal group, left guitars, right guitars, bass, effects, her, and then playback. Um, and so I'll do a lot of parallel compression with the drums. So I'll take my drum channels, EQ, compress, do what I want to on the main screen. And then on my groups, I'll also process there. Um, for her vocal, one thing that has really helped me out is I run her, so she goes from her headset to her wireless pack. Out of her wireless unit, I run analog out uh, into my Avalon compressor at front of house. And then out of the Avalon compressor, I insert it into the uh, the left right of the, um, excuse me, of my rack on the profile to keep it as analog as possible and override that preamp. And it really allows me to keep her in your face and sound warm. And I'll compress the heck out of her vocal. like. I mean, a solid 10 dB of compression uh, because, you know, when she's when she's whispering and doing that slow kind of creepy stuff, she wants it right here. But then when she's screaming, keep in mind, her microphone's never moving from her mouth at yeah. this point, ever, yeah. which is a blessing. I never have to worry about like any of that. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I compress it. Uh, the Avalon is a lifesaver. And really, other than that, I have a couple delays on her, a couple of reverbs, and then I do a, uh, a McFutz box for that Wi-Fi uh, AM radio effect that we use on her when she starts off a lot of songs. And then I just kick it off when she comes in the first uh, chorus. Wow. So you're using some outboard gear for her vocal chain and bringing that then into the profile. That's uh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. Yep. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's, I just found, you know, that a tube that the tube processing on that, on that Avalon is it's so warm. And when you can really, when you can really slam it and I can bring out the output on there, um, I remember we were in uh, uh, Glasgow and I, we were out with Hailstorm and I did it. And the guy's like, he's like, hey, mate, you know, that's a lot of compression you're going to use on that. And that was during us, or my virtual. And I was like, yeah, but you'll get it when she comes out and you'll see what's going on. And after the show is over, you know, I got the, 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 the pat on the back and the handshake. And he's like, you know, normally I, I would never use that much compression. But for what you're doing to get her to sit in your face, he's like, I feel like I could feel her whisper on the back of my neck. Wow, that's... And for me, I was like, that was like the biggest compliment because that's what she wants. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I was going to say that's quite the compliment, but you took the words right out of my mouth. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. So are you, um, 
Oh, go ahead. Uh, the other the other battle a lot of people don't realize is when she's standing on her riser, she's got that big riser with all the lights, and she's surrounded by these massive real effects fans that blow like fog and hair and stuff. Uh, when we measured it, we have like 81.2 dB of fan noise at the center of that riser where her capsule is on her headset. So keeping that out of the microphone as well, um, it's where that the knee 5045 really comes into play to keep uh, any of that background noise. So if she's not saying anything, that mic is completely off. So when she's headbanging and crawling around and the fog's blown in her face and you don't hear anything, it's just that that's completely turned off. Yeah. The, uh, and I think there's like waves has the primary source expander, uh, sort of behaves in a similar way. I'm going to try that out with Mixie, uh, whenever we get back on the road, I can't wait to give that thing a shot. Yep. Yeah. Well, man, we're at one hour exactly here and I like, yeah, isn't that insane? (laughs) seems like we just got started. I felt when I was like, when I was thinking about this and I knew we were going to talk, I was like, I, 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 cause I watched Eric's and I watched Alex's uh, and I watched the pooch one. Yeah. Um, and I was like, man, these go by pretty quick. I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna have enough to talk about. And the funny thing was I actually made notes in case I ran out of stuff to say, and I didn't touch any of these notes yet. Save them for next time because, um, I definitely, I, I definitely want to stay in contact and I want to talk to you, uh, again, because I feel, I, I say this in every podcast, but never more so has it been accurate. I just feel like I didn't even scratch the surface with you. Like I dusted it, you know, like there's so much more stuff we could talk about. There is, you know, I would, I would love to do a second part and, you know, I would love to talk about on the touring side of things, more audio as well in production, but like the leadership role and how you take a team of people, especially when you're traveling around the world and you have to deal with differences and discrepancies and health and mental health on the road and high stress situations. Um, Because that's really been a big thing I've been focusing on over the last couple of years. And I'm trying to kind of create more of a brand focused on that as well of helping people, you know, when they go to, when they go grab dinner, they're like, I just, I'm just going to get a cheeseburger. It's quick. Well, I know it's quick, but you know, you could get a salad with chicken and you're going to sleep this much better, but you're going to be this much more productive tomorrow. And I mean, and this can branch in a thousand directions, but uh, I would love to do a second part and, and talk more, but yeah, there's, there's definitely, uh, I got some more, crazy uh stories from the life of brian hardiswick <laughs> well take us out with one of your favorite stories if if i'm going to put you on the spot but uh what, right. what's a favorite story that you love to tell uh and take us out on that all right so my favorite one of my favorite stories download festival europe 2015 pop evil is the opening band i've always heard about this download festival i've never been i want to buy one of these little orange dogs that i keep seeing everybody has and so we finally get the gig. We do the show um, and Kiss and Motley Crue were headlining. It was uh, Motley Crue's last ever European performance it's on that end of the tour thing. Uh, so we do our show. We have a great, awesome show. The band is stoked. Promoters are stoked. Live recording came out great. So, you know, you do a festival and you're just like, you're having the best day. Like nothing can go wrong. So kill it. Everything's awesome. So um, Billy Idol was opening. So it was Pop Evil, 36 Crazy Fist, Billy Idol, Motley Crue, Kiss. And I'm a huge Steve Stevens fan who plays guitar for Billy Idol. So I'm up watching them. And it's I'm standing here like watching side stage monitor world. And then Chachi, our drummer, is right next to me, who's also a huge fan of this next part of the story I'm about to tell you about. So we're both standing there and we're like watching Billy Idol. And I'm like, this is awesome. We have a drink. Crushed our show. There's 100,000 people out there. I'm in Europe living my dream. And then like somebody like bumps my shoulder and I look 
And of all people, it's Tommy Lee. And I've never in my life had any sort of like, even like close to running with this guy, right? And I, I turn over and I look and my heart like fell through my body onto the floor and I couldn't even make words. I could like, I went fanboy level 10,000. And I was just like, uh, 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 and he's like, oh man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bump into you. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I couldn't say anything. And I look at Chachi next to me and I'm like, dude, dude, dude. And he's like, what? And I was like, we're here. And he looked and he couldn't say anything either. So we're both standing there growing up, idolizing Tommy Lee. He's touching my shoulder and I couldn't even say hi. <laughs> I just, I just stared at him. But just that moment and having a great festival day and one of my favorite people in the world, that just really, that really solidified like chasing a dream and working your ass off and getting to that point. And like here, I, there I was 25 years old standing on side stage watching Billy Idol at Download Festival because 10 years ago, I was sneaking into shows with a dollar XLR cable, just trying to shake a hand. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. That's uh. It happens to the best of us, you know, like you, you see people and you, you admire them and then you actually run into them and you really don't know what to say or how to act. And it, it happens to everybody. Yeah. I get the same way with Morgan Rose from seven dust. I still like, we toured with him. Like they were out within this moment last year and like, you'd come up and talk and hang out in the parking lot. And I like, couldn't still make words. I'm like, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> yeah, I totally get it. All right, man. Well, uh, let's put a let's put a bow on this one here because I think uh, sure. we we covered a lot of stuff, but I will definitely do a part two, um, and we can talk about the the other aspects. Which, you know, so many people don't understand that there's that touring is such a it's a business, and there's all these other components to it: the the project management, the leadership, the the health side of it, the insurance, the transportation, the logistics. Uh, you know, something as simple that seems simple to us, like advancing a show, uh, would blow people's minds. So I definitely think we should talk about all those things in a, in a follow-up part two to this. So let's, uh, yeah. And I, I really appreciate, uh, you offering that. So that'll be fantastic, but let's put a, let's put a, a nice bow on this, call this a, a good podcast, and then we'll get together and do part two and people will, uh, learn even more hopefully as a result. So we'll keep paying it forward. Awesome. We'll go over a proper Christmas light display as well in the next one. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All right, Brian, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, Thank you so much for joining and uh, I will talk to you very soon. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Uh, Take care. It was a pleasure to virtually meet you and uh, I look forward to it again. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a wrap on today's show. I hope that you found it equal parts entertaining and informative. This show is recorded on an Allen & Heath D-Live system with Sure microphones and Waves tracks live. I use Skype, FaceTime, and Facebook Messenger to meet with my guests, so the occasional robot voice is to be expected. Thanks again to Merrick Goodwin for the awesome show music and to you for listening. Be sure to visit the Mixmasters website at www.mixmasterspodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend. Mixmasters can also be found on Facebook and Instagram at Mixmasters Podcast. That's all one word. Give a like, follow us, and never miss out on new episodes. 